Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for putting up with all of the complications of the transition over here for a few weeks and your patience with that. And thanks, everyone, who pitched in some extra hours and um, labor this week. We couldn't have done this without you guys, so thank you for that. We are coming to the end of our celebration of Advent, and during Advent, we've been looking at a series of psalms called the Songs of Hope that we've been calling the Songs of Hope. And today's Epiphany, we're going to um, look at Psalm 47, and though this ends the celebration of Advent, we're going to continue in these psalms for the next few weeks. This is our fifth lesson. You can follow along in your bulletin. This is Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy, for the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For, the God, for God is the King of all the earth, sing to Him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to hear from this writer, from this psalm, from your holy word, which you have given us as a gift. Father, I pray that you would teach us to praise, that you would teach us to worship, that you would help us to identify all of those things in our lives that we are worshiping presently, that we praise, that draw, draw us away from you. Give us the voice to praise you this morning. Would you be present as we continue to worship, and as we look at this psalm, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may know uh, C.S. Lewis was uh, a writer, uh, sort of a philosopher, Christian philosopher, but for most of his life, early in his life, he was an atheist and was a professor at Oxford, became a Christian later in his adult life, and he writes a reflection on the psalms much later in his life, and reflects on the fact that the praise of God, the fact that God would ask to be praised over and over, that that was a stumbling block for him coming to faith as he approached belief in God. He found it hard to reconcile the fact that this God wanted praise, that he wanted acclaim, that he wanted glory, that God demanded it would be off-putting. And he says, we all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. So it was a hurdle for him, this idea of praising God. The Psalms were a hurdle because they're full of praise. They're full of giving God acclaim, giving God glory. But as he continued to search, he learned, he came to understand that People, that those who praise do so not because God has conscripted them into meeting his ego needs, but in fact, praise, worship, giving a claim to something is very natural, is very normal. 
It's in fact a very human thing to do. Praise and worship. What this psalm calls us to do is not an action of duty, but it's an expression of enjoyment. It's an expression of great delight. And what Lewis reasoned is that you actually have to stifle your praise of something that you enjoy. You have to kind of push down and keep hold of it. If it's something you love, you want to express that. You want to give it a claim. You want to praise it if it's something that is meaningful to you. Anything you find lovely, you want to praise. And that's what the Psalms are. That's what this Psalm is. It's an expression that this irrepressible praise comes up out of this writer. And that's what the Psalm is calling us to do. The Psalms are written for a community who are made up of people who find their joy, who find their delight in God himself. The Psalms are written for a community that can't help but sing, that can't repress its delight and joy in God. Now imagine with me something that you find very memorable, something that struck you, something that's grasped you, maybe even this week, or something that's stuck with you for a long time, something that you want to praise, something that has brought you great joy. Maybe it's a a fantastic movie that you just can't get out of your head and you want to tell other people, hey, go see this movie because it brought me great joy. It made me think in new ways. It left you floored. Or maybe, maybe your team this week won its bowl game and you want to tell people about that. Hopefully I'll be telling people about that tomorrow night. Maybe it's a a song that you've heard that has stuck in your mind. You can't stop singing it because you delight in it. Maybe it's a, a vista. You went on vacation. You drove up to this great canyon or this expanse, this ocean, and you can't get it out of your mind. Or maybe it's a, a new romance that's blossoming in your life. And this feeling sort of bubbles up within you. It's hard to keep it to yourself. You've been struck by something, and you want to you tell people about it. You gotta share it. You have to share it. You're compelled by something within you to tell people, to praise this thing that has struck you in this way. And many of the best works of art are like that. A painter gets an inspiration. He or she sees a vista and wants to paint it so that other people can share in their understanding, their vision of this vista. A writer comes to some insight And they want to share it. They want other people to understand the world, this new insight, in the way that they have. Poetry, songs are an attempt to tell people about something that they delight in. To bring someone else into this experience. And you hear songwriters talk about the songs inside them just had to come up. It's almost they're just captive. They're enslaved to their muse inside them. They had to tell people. They had to praise this thing that they've come to understand. These people have something to say, and they can't just say it. They have to paint it. They have to draw it. They have to sing it. And that's what these psalms are. It's songs of hope, songs of delight, songs that can't stay inside because God has done something in the life of these writers. God has done something in our lives, if we're a Christian, that causes us to come here this morning To give what? To worship. To give praise. That's what you're coming here to do this morning. That's what these psalms compel you to do, is to sing 
praises, to worship. These writers had experienced God in a very powerful, potent way. And they couldn't just say it. They had to sing it. They had to invite you in to something of their life, of their experience. Now, if you read the reflection quotes while you were out drinking your coffee at the very beginning, you saw that Nietzsche also had a difficult time with this idea of God wanting praise. He says, I cannot believe in a God who wants to be praised all the time. But think with me for a moment. What if your son runs away? You're a parent, and your son runs away and strikes up this relationship with someone who becomes sort of a parent figure that begins to replace you. Your son's kind of sick of you, and they're, they're done with you, and they've gone on to bigger and better things. They've established this new relationship. And so your son goes off, and he adopts the dress. He adopts the pattern of speech. He adopts the swagger of this new friend, this new parent. And you are alarmed because you know this person to be very dangerous. You know this person's reputation. And you've sacrificed so much over the years to feed and clothe and provide for your son. You've worked so that he can have the things that he needs. You've read him books in bed. You've tucked him in. You've imparted wisdom. You've imparted your story so that he can understand the world. But now, after many years of having this close relationship with your son, with your child, this stranger has interjected himself. And your son is willingly going along. Your son is saying, Mom or Dad, I'm, I'm done. And I'm going and finding a new parent figure. Wouldn't there be in that situation an appropriate time, maybe even a necessary time at some point for you as the parent to lay out your resume again before your son with tears in your eyes, without a, a hint of arrogance? You say, Son, don't neglect me. Don't demean me. Don't forget that I'm your, your loving mother, your loving father, and there's no one else on, on earth who knows you and loves you like me. I've spent sleepless nights feeding you. I've spent sleepless nights waiting on you to come home. Please don't forsake this relationship that we've built. I love you fiercely, and I'll love you even when that person that you've put so much importance in, even when they get tired of you, even when they're ready to move on, even when they turn on you, I will continue fiercely loving you. Please come back to me. Would anyone think of that rehearsal of the parent's resume, of everything that the parent has done for that person? Would anyone find that to be arrogant or self-serving or irritating in any way? Of course not. You're seeking to save your son, and you'll do anything to have them back. You're telling them about yourself. You're telling them about this relationship that you want to have with them, not to serve your own needs and fill your own ego, but because you want the best for them. You're laying out your resume and calling your son to come back home, come back to where there is true generosity, true love, true intimacy. It's the farthest thing from pride and ego. Praise, you see, is for us. Worship is for you and I. Of course, God warrants it. God is worthy of it. 
But he calls you and I to worship so that we can be made whole, so that we can come into relationship with him. It's so that we can come back from that parent figure that we've begun to follow that is dangerous and destructive and comes in between the relationship that you're meant to have with God. You see, it's not arrogance, it's not ego, but over and over in the Bible and in these Psalms, God is saying, don't forget who I am. Don't forget what I've done for you. Don't forget that I've rescued you. You need to know, you need to remember who's carrying who. Over Christmas, we rewatched the original Superman movie. You remember the one with Christopher Reeve back in, I think it was 79 maybe that it came out. And in his first appearance as Superman, uh, he, of course, is saving Lois Lane. Who else? And Lois is taking a helicopter off the top of the Daily Planet, and it crashes on takeoff. Its, its landing gear gets caught in these wires, and it's, it's hanging on the side of the Daily Planet, way up in the sky, and Lois Lane is hanging on by a seatbelt, and then the seatbelt comes unclasped, and she begins to fall. And now, fortunately, it's a very tall building because Clark Kent has enough time to walk out of the revolving door and look up and see Lois falling, and he has time to go back in and spin around and change into a Superman costume and fly up the side of the building and catch Lois Lane. But of course, Lois hasn't seen Superman yet. No one has seen Superman. They don't know that he can fly and has all this super strength. And so as he flies up the building and catches her as she's hurtling to the earth, he says in his best Boy Scout impersonation, don't worry, ma'am, I've got you. And Lois, of course, says, well, you've got me. Who's got you? She had not seen Superman yet. She didn't know that he could carry her, that he was there to rescue her. As she hurtled to the earth, the only thing that could save Lois Lane was Superman. And he comes up and says, don't worry, I've got you. Psalm 47 says, sing a psalm of praise to the Lord, not because God has low self-esteem, but to help us remember who's carrying who. The psalmist praises God because he is the great king who offers to carry, to shepherd, to uphold, to rescue his people. For the Lord Most High is awesome. That's a word that's totally been stripped of its meaning because it's the word that kids use to describe a new skateboard or a a great wave that they're about to ride. That thing is awesome. But it's not just cool. What it means here is that God is awesome awe-inspiring, that if you come into his presence, if you see him, even a bit of who he is, that you stand in awe, that you're overwhelmed with awe. The Lord Most High is awesome, who is also a great king over all the earth. Now, as we said last week, we have a problem with this assertion, this is difficult. When he says, I want to be your king, we as Americans, we as humans who value our autonomy, especially as Americans who had a little tea party a few hundred years ago to say no to monarchy, we say, no, I don't want a king. We don't like monarchy. We want anything but a king. What would your anything be? If you could kind of have a designer God 
what would it be like? What would he be like? Would he be like sort of a search engine that when you're coming up blanks, when you don't have answers for things in your life, that you go to God and you type in your query and he gives you wisdom. He gives you little help. He gives you answers. We want a search engine God, not a, not a king. Or maybe we want a God who's kind of like a healthy, a helpful s- surgeon, that he's going to fix what ails you. Now, of course, you don't want to need him too much because surgery is never fun. But you're glad to have a surgeon when you need one. Or maybe our designer God, the God that we would design, looks sort of like, like Santa. He gives you stuff as long as you're nice. You lay out cookies for him to keep him on your good side. What would your anything God be like? How would you design him? How would you make a God in your own image, the type of God that you would want? None of us. None of us really want God to be the type of king that he asked to be in our life, that he in fact is over all of creation. We don't want a king. We want a God who gives us what we want. Maybe we try to fashion the actual God in our image into what we want, a search engine, a surgeon, a Santa, or we make gods out of the things that we want. Now, these gods at first don't seem like kings. They're more palatable because we've chosen them. We, we think we've got control over these gods. But the gods that we make in our image, the gods we look to to get what we want, end up dominate, dominating us just the same. Pretty soon, we're paying taxes and serving them just as we would any other king. And we, we know this, right? We know this in our own lives, the way that we bow before certain things that we cannot do without. Ralph Waldo Emerson says, the gods we worship write their names on our faces. Be sure of that. And a man will worship something. That which dominates will will determine his life and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. I wouldn't necessarily agree with everything that Emerson wrote, but he's tugging on a very central thread in the Bible and in these Psalms and in this one. Because he's speaking here not necessarily just of the gods of world religion, but any good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. Anything that's good that we craft into a god. Achievement, career, money, status, image, relationships, sex, children. Any of these things can become kings over you, kings over me, and they'll crush us and we'll crush others to get to them and to protect them. If it's achievement, money, career, we'll be devastated by setbacks and we'll see people as either assets or liabilities. If it's sex, if sex is the God that we're serving, if that's our king, then we'll be in search of constant pleasure and we'll never be happy if we don't get it enough. And we'll see people either as toys or as objects. If our kids are our king, then we'll be ruined if our kids don't turn out precisely how we want them to. If they turn away from us, we'll be absolutely ruined and we'll crush them with our expectations. Psalm 47 then is saying, if we understand that this idea, that we all have kings in our lives, and what 
the Psalms want to do is dislodge the rule of those kings in our lives, then it's relevant for everyone here. Not just those of us who are Christians, but all of us need the story of God's salvation in the Bible. Which says, not first of all, the starting point is not first of all that you've done bad things, but that you've served bad kings. Not that you've done bad things, but that you've served bad kings. Your service to them has then rendered service and actions and behavior that is wrong. But first of all, the first thing is that you have a king over you that is different than God. It's not simply that you've broken the rules and now you need to be saved from your bad behavior, but that you've worshipped things that are bad for you and you need to be rescued. For the Lord Most High is awesome. The great king over all the earth. He subdued nations under us. He put peoples under our feet. Now this sounds odd to our modern ears, that we would praise God for lifting up one nation over the others. Doesn't that seem kind of prideful and arrogant and proud? But what's going on in this psalm and over and over in the Bible is that God has rescued his people from the oppression and the slavery and the exile in, from other nations. He's liberated them from bad kings who have ruled over them. That's biblical salvation. That's what he wants to subdue. He wants to subdue all of the terrible tyrant kings in your life that are crushing you and that you're crushing others to serve. All of us, if we're honest, are living under the reign of something in our lives. For the writers of this psalm and other psalms, it was the reign of actual monarchs who had enslaved God's people and exiled them. Is very obvious for us, maybe not so. Maybe it's not quite so obvious what we are serving, but it's no less real. Our gods of achievement, of image, of relationships, of sex have enslaved us and exiled us from our true selves. The people who see this, the people who look at their own lives and know that they've been enslaved to their own self, to their own self-interest, to their achievements, to their career, the people that know that and then are rescued out from that, what happens? What's their response? They praise and they sing. They clap their hands. And I'm not talking here about the polite Western European golf clap that you see on golf courses. This is uproarious applause. It's outlandish applause. And friends, in-towners, there's room for that here. I know we're Presbyterians, but there's room to clap your hands when you, get, when you encounter something in worship that strikes you, that moves you. For God's sake, clap. They clap their hands and they shout to God. They cry for joy. Notice these are all prescriptions. These are all calls to praise that make us polite Presbyterians, very uncomfortable. But even if you're not a Presbyterian or you're not even a Christian, you probably aren't all that comfortable with these things either. Maybe you clap and cheer 
at a ball game, but that's really the only kind of analog in our daily experience that corresponds with something in this psalm. When was the last time that you sung praises with other people? When was the last time outside of happy birthday that you sung anything in unison with other people? When was the last time you shouted, not at the driver in front of you, but shouted in delight? When was the last time you shouted with great joy? When was the last time hand in hand with other people that you cried in joy? This is the description of the normal Christian life. That you're to clap your hands, that you're to delight in God so much that it upwells within you into shouts of joy, into great delight that you cannot repress. Absolutely, the Christian life is bowing to the king who subdues nations, and you cannot get around that. I can't make that any more palatable to you. However, what's the result of bowing? What's the result of someone that says, I no longer want to be my own Lord and Master, my own King, and I give up rule over my life to God. What is the result? Is it resignation that you, you simply had no other choice because he's God after all, and so I had to bow. I had to resign myself to him. Is it, well, you know, this life won't really be all that much fun, but that's the price I got to pay to get to heaven. What's the result of those who bow body and soul to God? Cries of joy, singing of praises, thanksgiving that the great king over all the earth hasn't crushed you, but saved you, rescued you, holds you in his hands, doesn't want you to give your loves to anyone else or any other thing more than him in a way that usurps his love and his relationship. He loves you that much. We celebrate Epiphany this morning, and Epiphany is manifestation. It's the appearing of the long-waited-for Messiah King. It's the time where God makes good on His ancient promises to send a Messiah King of the world. And when He appears, who comes? Is it the religious elite that have been waiting for Messiah? Is it those who seem outwardly to be most fit for the king? No, it's the pagan kings that travel months to come and worship the baby king. Jesus is not received by the religious and the devout, but by the pagan. Those who cry out for joy, those who should cry out for joy, cry out instead for his eventual crucifixion. Because why? Jesus is not the kind of God that they want. They don't want that kind of God. They don't want a king like that. They want a king as a monarch to come and dislodge the rule that the Romans have in their world. And when Jesus says, that's not why I'm here immediately, they say, crucify him. When the true king comes, those who are waiting for him don't offer him a golden crown, but a crown of thorns. And a sign is put on his cross that says, King of the Jews. And it's not meant as an enthronement. It's not meant as a coronation. It's a joke. It's a mockery. This is no one's king. Because who can imagine 
a suffering king who's born in a manger. These ancient promises from the Psalms, from all of the Old Testament, that tell us that when Messiah comes, he will be a conquering king and a suffering king. And those two themes, those two threads that the Old Testament writers put together are finally tied together. And Jesus, the one who is born in a manger, is that conquering king who's come to conquer all of the kings of the world and conquer your kings that are destroying you and conquer evil in and of itself is also the suffering king, the king who lets evil do its worst to you, to him. He's the suffering king who suffers on your behalf. The Lord is an awesome God, awe-inspiring. God would do that for me, the one who could squash me, the one who could crush me, saves me, gives himself up for me, the one who owns the world, the one whom you can't bargain with, the one whom you have no leverage over, the one who could crush you comes instead to save you. And so this psalm says, the Lord is an awesome God. He is most high, but he's stooped low to rescue you. He's become one of you in order to bring you home, in order to redeem you, in order to destroy all of the bad kings and their reign and rule over your life that's crushing you and that you're crushing others to protect. This is the God whom the prophet Zephaniah says sings over you and dances over you with great delight. This is the God who, when you go astray, lays out his resume and says, come back. And what is his resume? His resume is that he is willing to say, my life for yours. I'll do anything it takes to get you back because I sing and dance over you. That's the awesome God. That's the most high God. That's the great king who has all power, who can conquer anything, who comes and suffers on our behalf. And therefore, the prescription, the response is to clap. Clap your hands. Shout for joy. Cry in delight. That's praise. That's worship. You're not conscripted here to praise and worship God because he has a small ego. He's inviting you to praise and worship him so that you can become most human and most free. And the only way that we can do that is to say that baby who is born in the manger, that baby who is visited on Epiphany by those magi is the true king of the world. And I give up rule over my own life and I submit and bow to his gracious, loving, and merciful rule now and forevermore. That's what worship is all about. That's what we rehearse each and every Sunday as we come. That's what we do at this table. We rehearse that vow, that initial bowing, we do it again. That's what praise and worship is. And so therefore, shout, clap your hands, be glad, be joyful, because the conquering king is also the suffering king who suffers for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you that though you can demand everything, our lives in a moment, that we owe everything to you, that you uphold us nonetheless, that you give us gifts of your great mercy, that you take pleasure in us, that you sing and dance over us. I pray that that would animate our lives this week, that you would make us new with understanding your mercies that are new every morning. 
We pray as we come to this table, as we confess our faith, that you would bind us to yourself more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.